So this summer, actually, I speculated that it would be wise to enter into a teaching series in the fall where we talked about rebuilding different spaces of our lives, whether relational, vocational, marital, parenting, singleness, uh, with the tragedy that we've experienced over the past two years, with the job loss New York City has seen, with the transiency, with the sickness, we just thought maybe this is a season where why to rebuild and how to rebuild different, different areas of our lives is truly important, and not just important, deeply spiritual. Right? God, is, God is always present and working, and we believe he is working in this season, rebuilding parts of our lives. Now, um, my lean is to talk about rebuilding the church. I'll tell you why in a second. Uh, but in the process of thinking about talking about rebuilding the city of New York and rebuilding the church, th- there's the reality that comes up that many of us just lost a person. Others of us are struggling with depression. Some of us are just trying to find a job. Others are wondering whether or not we're even in New York City in this next season. Some are trying to navigate the increasing anxiety that our children have. And most of us in this room are exhausted from two straight years of Zoom meetings, right? Like, we're just done. And so to talk about the importance of rebuilding the church, um, with all that swirling around in our heads and in our hearts, the weariness that so many of us had, it, it just somehow felt really irrelevant. Right? It just felt irrelevant to me. It felt irrelevant to Macho. Felt irrelevant to Sophie, um, and can even come off trite. Like, well, with what we're experiencing on a daily basis, to talk about the importance of rebuilding the church. And so, for the last seven weeks, we've talked about rebuilding individual parts of our lives, rebuilding a city. And, but the, the church, the church, the scripture calls the church the bride of Jesus. And I am not sure that we can truly love Jesus if we don't figure out how to really love the church in this season. The church, the scripture calls the church the body of Christ, meaning that one of the great hopes of our time of seeing people experience the sacrificial love and life of Jesus that we believe moves people from purposelessness to purpose, from addiction to sobriety, from a hot mess relationally to relationships that are emotionally healthy. We believe that does it. For, for that to happen... One of the best ways for that to happen is is for the church to show its sacrificial love to people. Currently, like I said, 38% of churches across the nation, and which means it's probably a little bit higher in New York City, have not or will not or may never reopen again. This one that we started eight weeks prior to the pandemic lost 50% of its people out of the city during pandemic. 50%. It's heartbreaking to me. And so we've needed to re-enter into a rebuilding phase. And so we spent the last seven weeks talking about how to rebuild these different spaces in our individual lives for the sake of the city. But today, specifically, you're going to hear a passage, Matthew 12, that is near and dear to my heart. I teach on it multiple times a year for our different congregations. But we're talking about the church, rebuilding the church. But to explain why the church is so important, And why rebuilding it is so important. We need to discuss what the church actually is because people have a lot of different wild ideas about what the church is. And so what you're going to get over the next 15 minutes or so today is some ecclesiology. 
Uh, the study of the, the church. What is the church supposed to be, both globally, but what's the church supposed to be? Why are we called to give so much of who we are to the church locally, here in West Queens and beyond? Like, why does Mosaic Church matter? What is it about the church here in West Queens that matters so deeply that we long to have more and more people commit our emotional resources to it, our, our, our physical resources to it, our financial resources to it, our intercessory prayer to it? And here's the first thing you need to know about the church. The church was always intended to be a new family among a culture of individuality. You will, you will hear me talk about this again and again and again. You will get sick of me talking about this as one of your pastors over the years because I think it is that important for those of you that show up to this space to know that the church was never intended to simply be an institution but a new family amidst a culture of individuality. This gospel passage in Matthew 12 Jesus is speaking to a bunch of his mentees or disciples and his mother and brothers show up. It says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Somebody told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside. He replies, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Then pointing to the disciples, his students, he says, here they are. Here are my mother. Here are my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven, that's my mother. That's my brother. That's my sister. That is my family. Now, I hear that, and I'm like, that's disrespectful. <laughs> if I'm your mom, you're about to get a spanking. Like, that's, I, I feel that creep up in me of, like, seriously, Jesus? There's, there's different pieces of Scripture throughout the New Testament, and mainly the Gospels, that almost make it sound like Jesus is anti-family somehow. There's one moment where Jesus walks up to a man who's just lost his father. And Jesus looks at the man and says, I want you to follow me. And the man goes, I will. Just let me first bury my father and then I'll follow you. And Jesus retorts, no, let the dead bury the dead. Come on. I'm like, dear God, what? There's another passage in Thessalonians. I'm sorry, not Thessalonians. This would also come in Matthew. Where Jesus looks at people and says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to, to the earth. I'm not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, which I was like, that shouldn't be that hard. And a, and a person's enemy will be those of his own household. So we listen to these passages and we go, we must be understanding something wrong because there is no way that the nice Jesus rabbi would have these type of anti-family teachings. Now, Honestly, we come to it from a Western mindset, and, and in the West, we value family for the most part. It's an important thing. And so that's part of the reason we're like, ah, this just doesn't sit well with me. And so one of the things that we have to do to read the text appropriately is understand cultural context, which would be modern-day Palestine context. And here's what you need to know about this context right now. We live in what we would call an individualistic society. Right, where, where I get to make the biggest life decisions based on my individual needs and wants. So think through this. What, what I'm going to do vocationally. Right, who I'm going to spend my life with romantically. Where I'm going to live geographically. Those are the big questions of life. Usually, not always, but usually I get to answer those based on my individual preferences, wants, and desires. That is what we do in an individualistic context. This is not the cultural context of modern-day Palestine as Jesus walked this area so many years ago. He lived and did ministry in a collectivist culture where family comes first. And so when we ask those bigger questions, 
We're answering based upon what will give the most value to our family. I marry who will bring the most value to my family. I carry on my father's business, my father's trade. I live geographically in the same space as my extended family because the family is first. In fact, one author, Joseph Hellerman, says that family was so central to the DNA of life that one would find more non-sexual intimacy with their sister than their wife or with their brother than their husband. This is how a collectivist culture at this time would have been, which makes this teaching so much more frustrating. It is in this context that Jesus walks in while his mother and brother are standing there, and he says, who is my mother? Who is my brother? And then pointing to his disciples, he says, here they are, my mother, my brother, my sisters, whoever does the will of my father in heaven, that's my family. Now, what does this mean? It means that Jesus steps into a culture that sees everything through the lens of family. Some of you are from a cultural context like this. Everything is seen through the lens of family and decides, I'm not going to simply challenge that value. I'm going to redefine the boundary lines of what family actually is. This would have been an electric teaching. You would have had people going, what is he doing? Because what's happening here is Jesus isn't just creating a new church. Jesus is creating a new family that would be a signpost to the rest of the world that God was actually alive and bringing a new kingdom to bear among worldly empires. This was a massive teaching. A family where his father in heaven would be dad. He would model what it would look like to be a kid of this family as the elder brother. And we would call each other as quirky as we all are, brothers and sisters. It would be a family that contends for one another, that wades through decision-making processes together, not solo as in individualistic societies, where we would grieve together and celebrate together and wade through dysfunctional conflict together and remain steadfast in the midst of the most chaotic seasons together. This is the type of family we're talking to. And we make the church an institution. Now what this means is that the guts of the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus actually leaves his Father in heaven to create a family on earth for people that don't have one. We say it this way at Mosaic all the time. It means that Jesus left his family to create family for people that do not have family. That is the purpose, the thrust, the guts of the church. And this isn't just a Jesus-specific teaching. The overarching meta-narrative of the entire story of God is one of family for the sake of those that do not have it. In the first book of the Bible, the book of Origins, otherwise known as Genesis, God promises a man named Abraham, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possessions of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. In Paul's letter to a little church about the size of this, in a place called Thessalonica, he uses familial language nonstop. He writes, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. 
Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and our hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each other as a father deals with his own children, encouraging and comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom of glory. The church is intended to be a new family among a culture of individuality. Now, before I shift to the second part of this, some of you, some of you that have moved from different cities that don't have extended family in New York City, you're like, that sounds great. I need some company. Others of us, others of us hear this and we literally get triggered. Like the thought of yielding to one another and staying together and letting other people speak into our decision-making processes, knowing how dysfunctional our families of origin have been. We're like, no thanks, I already got one, don't need a second one. And let's just be honest, the, I, I don't know many people whose families of origin aren't dysfunctional. My kids will go to therapy in 20 years and be like, our family was nuts. I'm like, yes, that's just kind of how it goes. And so know that I don't call you into this with some rose-colored glasses. I, I, I call you into this warning you that this process of treating the church the way that it was always intended to be, it's going to be really hard as you start to form relationships with people who come from very different contexts and backgrounds and cultures. And much of what they and you bring into the family is good. And Jesus will affirm it and go, this looks like my way. And much of what I bring and Macho bring and Sophie brings into this family will be completely dysfunctional. And we will have to name it and go, this is, does not look like Jesus. I bring this from my family of origin and I need to just give it language. And I need to repent of it and say this is not the way of Jesus and I need to do my best to let other people into my life to help me move out of that way as I become part of the Jesus family first and so we look to Jesus as the older brother to tell us about which of the stuff that we bring into the church is like him and what needs to be challenged and lost along the way to replace it with a kingdom culture instead of a Sadler family culture I grew up in a family where the way that we did conflict, we could get angry, but there was no vulnerability. I could get angry, but I couldn't get hurt. I couldn't get sad. And then we would, we would yell at each other for about 10 minutes, and then we would pretend like everything was okay for the next three days, and then all of a sudden, one of us, usually it would be me getting an email that was three pages long from my father telling me about all the things that he was angry at. That's not healthy conflict. And so I need to go, this is something central to the Sadler culture that I cannot bring into this space. I'm going to, but I need to name it, I need to check it at the door, and I need to go, there's a different way of conflict that Jesus shows. Jesus left his family to create family for people that do not have it. And so a few quick action steps to shift us from viewing the church as institution to church as family. One, consistency matters. Your consistency here, your consistency in whatever part of group you might be, that matters. And not because we need butts in the seats here, that matters too. But that's not why consistency matters. Consistency matters because that's actually what builds vulnerable relationships. 
We cannot waltz in here once every four weeks, sit, listen to either me or some other talking head for 30 minutes, and say hi and catch up on our week, leave, come back four weeks later and think that that is going to produce meaningful relationships. It won't. We know this. And for some people, that's okay. They just need to take small steps along the way as they get to know people. And we want you to know that that is fine. Come and take those small steps. But consistency enables vulnerability. Transiency enables superficiality and institutionalism to remain. Then we go from consumer to participant. All right, most people, when they start to look for a church, they go, what, what is the church going to offer me? And that's important. That really is important to ask that question because if you're not getting value from a, a, a family that you belong to, that's, that's not good, right? Spending this much time where you're not getting value, that's not good. But usually that's where we stop and where we need to go is to ask, what do I actually have to bring to the table here? What do I have to bring to the table? Because every one of us have resources, we have skills, we have experience, we have empathies that each other do not have. And so we have to stop solely asking, what can I get from a church community? And we have to start asking, what can I actually bring to it? I'm consuming a participant. Third, treat the church as a people, not a place. Right? This means that the church is more fluid, meaning that I meet with the church when I hang out with Stephanie and Alicia and Sophie on Tuesday nights. And I hang out with the church when I'm meeting with Lucy on Tuesday mornings. And when I grab a coffee with Haley and Sushi, I'm meeting with the church. That's the church. The church is fluid. And we have to be able to see it as fluid so that we just don't go, yeah, I'm engaging in the church when we come here once every three weeks. That's not the church. Last, interrogate the values we bring into the family of Jesus. We, just have, to inter- we have to be bold and courageous enough to go, I only get to experience grace when I acknowledge that I need it. And so when I come to the the family of Christ, I'm interrogating my origin, my upbringing, my experiences and going, was that like Jesus? No, probably not. Was that like Jesus, the way that we did conflict? No, probably not. The way that we valued education over everything else, was that like Jesus? No, probably not. I, I have to be courageous enough to interrogate that. So why do we rebuild the church after these two crazy years? One, because the, new, the, the church is supposed to be a new family and a culture of individuality. Two, a church is supposed to be a new humanity and a culture of polarity. So just this last week, my, my Twitter feed started to blow up again. It hasn't done this in a while, but it started to blow up. There was a quick uptick in, in, in political banter between business folks and political leaders and friends and family that I follow. And that only means one thing in my Twitter sphere. That means that Donald J. Trump is back on the scene somehow. That's what that means. And sure enough, I start, I start scrolling and I'm like, there it is. Uh, one of his old tech organizations is, is getting ready to launch a social media platform of his own called Truth. Um, which just leads me to, to think We've never seen such a polarizing time in the, in the written history of the world. We just, we just, we never have. In fact, this past week, I, I listened to a podcast where an armchair sociologist and incredible theologian 
was talking about the polarity that the algorithm has created. And, and most of you know what that means because I talk about it often, but just in case you don't, uh, all algorithms in social media, they kick to you those that, that reinforce the opinions you already have, keeps you separate from those that may differ from you, right? Minimizing the amount of empathy that we can have for one another. Everybody good with that? Okay. So, so he's talking about the, the polarity that algorithms have created, and he's asked the question, how do you think people will look back upon Mark Zuckerberg? Mark Zuckerberg, just so we're all on the same page here, owner of Facebook and half the world, right? I go, what, so how are people going to look back 100 years from now on Mark Zuckerberg? And he says, I know this is going to sound strange, but I think the world will look back at Zuckerberg in the way that the world looks back at Stalin and Hitler. And I was like, that's a little harsh. But then I, I started processing through it, going the polarity, the violence, and the expediency in which people strip dignity from those that are different from them have been on a much more global scale than anything Hitler and Stalin actually had. And so I hope to God that this guy is totally wrong, but you can see where he's going with this thought process. The polarity of our time is at a fever pitch, and education is not helping, and politicians are, are not, uh, clearly not helping. They're all feeding off it. Media is not helping. Media is feeding off it. And so we need something that can help a divided country and a divided city and even divided households empathize with one another differently. Right? And we need it fast. For the sake of all of our sanity and our emotional health, we need it fast. And this is where the church comes in. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Ephesians 2. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles or non-Jews, called the uncircumcised, something that Jews would do to mark themselves and set themselves apart, by those who call themselves the circumcision, Jews, Remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, God, seen in Jesus, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So let me just, just kind of sum this up. The gospel is pretty simple. The good news of God is simple. You are made by God. You are loved by God. And God shows himself. God shows God's self, let me say it this way, God shows God's self to you fully through the death of Jesus where he shows himself fully in who Jesus is and he allows man to do the absolute worst to him in that death. Through his resurrection, defeating death, God shows us that nothing, no sin, no guilt, no shame, no shortcomings, not even the grave itself can actually keep God from us because of the depth and the height and the width of God's love for us. And it does not matter our background. It doesn't matter the baggage we carry. At this point, the scripture tells us that Jesus 
sends to heaven after he is resurrected from the dead and his very spirit is poured out on all people who have said yes to him. The spirit of the creator Yahweh now in us. The one who has the capacity to change things, transform things, move and melt people's hearts. That spirit is now in us. This is the only worldview where there should be complete equal playing field because the same spirit resides in all of us, myself and Erica and Pete, who have said yes to Jesus. And that spirit breaks down all socioeconomic barriers. It breaks down all cultural differences, all gender differences, all political differences, all orientation differences, all power dynamics. Breaks down all of it. It is equal playing field because no longer are we defined by what we do or don't do. We are defined by what God has done through Jesus on the cross. And because of that, there is nothing good enough, like we always say, that you can do to earn the the. Father's love, and there's nothing bad enough you can do to lose it. It's done. It's final. And so this is complete equal playing field. The Spirit's in us. That's a, that is a big deal. And so all of those dividing walls are broken down, or can be. And so again, I don't, I don't approach this with, with those rose-colored glasses. Not like, oh, it's all sing kumbaya. Like, that's not it. It takes work. It takes a surrender to that Holy Spirit where you allow that spirit to be honest to you. But when we do, something happens. And not just to us, but to the city. And so let me, let me spend just a moment explaining why that is so powerful. Most of my friends who do not buy into the Christian narrative would say that Religion is nothing more than an extension of culture. Right? So, so, of course, the majority of those in, in India are, are Hindu because this is where Hindu originated. Right? And, of course, most Muslims are in North Africa or Southeast Asia because that's where Muhammad started his first campaign. Of course, that religion is nothing more than an extension of culture. So that makes sense, Dan. Shintoism is, is condensed in Japan because this is where it has its origins. Religion is nothing more than an extension of culture. But then you get to a community of people in the middle of West Queens or the middle of Roosevelt Island or the middle of the Upper East Side who look a whole heck of a lot different than one another, are coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds, are coming from different origins, different family contexts, different cultures, even different creeds, now rallying around this Jesus, and you're like, I don't know what to do with that. I can no longer make the argument that religion is simply an extension of culture. When the church functions like a new humanity in a culture of polarity, it speaks a better word to the world that says religion is nothing more than an extension of culture. So the church, we know it, has been in bed with political power, often driving political power behind the scenes. It has been an institution that has caused division often more times than unity. It is often way too legalistic, keeping shame and guilt and instead of loading up people with freedom and grace and hope. And yet when we look to Jesus, the church was always meant to be this new family and this new humanity. Now the question becomes... If I commit to that, if I bend much of my life around that, what will happen? 
What do I get out of this? What will happen to me? If I start to move from consumer to participant, if I start to practice consistency, if I start to interrogate the way I do conflict and communication, what will happen? How is this worthy of so much of my life and my energy and my resources? Because life is chaotic. So let me end with this story. Thursday night, I was, I was invited out to a concert from one of our musicians at one of our other uh, Mosaic churches. And I did, I'm not, even though I'm rocking a sweet turtleneck, I'm not that cool. Uh, and so I didn't know who uh, Anderson Pack was. Um, and I knew I, 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 apparently I'd heard one of his songs, Bruno Mars, before, but I didn't know. And, and so he asked me to come. I said, sure, Macho's like, oh, it'll be a great concert. I'm like, whatever, let's, let's go. So I, I meet my friend Kevin, and we uh, get right up to, to the front row in Hudson Yards. And there's a, a fence separating us and all of the performers. So I can kind of reach over and touch them all if I was a creepy dude. Uh, but as we get there, and the first opening act starts to happen, there's this young black man that is, he's signing. He is, he is signing, and he's signing to one of the bodyguards. There is a six foot six, 300-pound guy whose arms are the size of my waist. He is ginormous, and I see that he has a couple hearing aids in. So he obviously has hearing impairment. And I see this young black man who is, who is signing to him and signing back. And so after I watch, kind of just because that, that intrigues me, I, I, I lean over and I ask the young black man, I'm like, hey, um, does your whole crew sign? And he's like, no, 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 I'm just learning. And he does. And I say, okay, great. The, 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 the last opening act starts. And this woman, this DJ comes out on stage. And she's, she's well known in the city. And she's got her own trumpet section as she's mixing. And I'm like, this is, and she's just playing like the right music, like the right dance music. So she's now got thousands moving. I mean, we're, we're, we're outside. It's a party. It's the first time Anderson Pack has performed since shutdown. So everybody is just loving life. And she's playing like Michael Jackson songs, mixing them up, Stevie Wonder. I mean, it's the best of the best. And, uh, and, and, and as she begins, a third character now comes from behind the stage. And it's this, this white woman who's got this magenta mohawk. And you just know right away, I'm like, you're someone. I don't know who you are, but you're someone. And she walks over and she starts signing with the young black man and the, the large security guard. And then all of a sudden she gets up on stage as the DJ begins to perform. And she starts to sign. And I... I can't over-exaggerate this enough. Every person in that space now loses complete focus on the DJ and turns to this woman because of how incredible she is performing. This isn't just interpretation. She is now performing to Michael Jackson, and it's on a different level. I'm like, this is amazing. So she's got us all. She's got the whole place turned. I find out later she's well-known. Her name is Galloway Gallego, and she is known as the, the Jay-Z of interpretation. And so I, I, I'm now locked in. And you see the two men now sit down almost 
literally at her feet. She's a couple feet up on the stage, and they sit down, and they're watching her, and they have their iPads out scanning the lyrics as they're trying to learn from her because this is a different level. She is a sage of interpretation. You can tell that this is something special to watch. And so I'm watching, and this is, I'm like, this is great. And then the music kind of fades, and you can tell they're going into their last song. And they go into like the, the, the dance party songs of all songs. And, and one, of, one of the trumpets steps forward and you just hear it. And if you know dance music at all, you know that is key for House of Pain's Jump Around. And everybody is in. And she starts just going and the place is rocking. And all of a sudden... She gets down in the middle of the performance, steps down from the stage, and almost like she's in the middle of like a WWE tournament, she tags in the security guard who has hearing impairment. And my man gets up, all six foot seven, 300 pounds of this guy, and he now starts to sign, and I'm realizing what I'm seeing. You have a man who could never, ever perform musically in real time to thousands of people with the disability that he has, unless he is some prodigy like the handful that have been throughout the history of the world. But this man should not be able to do what he is doing. The mentor, she has now taken a seat on the floor and she is helping the bodyguard actually perform this whole song to thousands of people and now everybody's locked in because they know what's happening. A guy who should not be able to do this is now doing something he shouldn't be able to do. And I walked away from this night. I walked away going, that was potentially the best example of empowerment I've ever seen in my life. I don't think I've ever seen anything so clear as seeing the mentor sit down at the feet of the student and allow them to do something that they were never able to do prior to that mentor. And so I just want to end by saying this. We believe deeply that the spiritual ministry of Jesus should not be able to be done in our flesh. There are things that Jesus does and that Jesus did that we cannot do with all of our skill sets, experience, and fleshly effort. We can't do it. Physical healing, we can't do it. Clear and articulate proclamation of a gospel that transforms people the way that Jesus did, we can't do it. His word is active and powerful, the scripture says. We can't speak a word and see something change in a person's life in our flesh. We can't do that. The prophetic ministry where we actually speak truth into a person's life in a way that sets them free. Consecration, where we take people and, and, and set them apart to do works that they would never be able to do outside of the, the empowerment we're giving them. That we can't do that. We can't exercise the demonic and push back darkness and principalities on our own. We can't. But this was the spiritual ministry of Jesus that you see in the Gospels. And why the church is so important is because this is the family where Jesus says, I will sit down and I will give you my spirit so that you can partake in my ministry that you could never do before on your own. That you can walk into the streets of West Queens and you can bring people to life because you have said yes to me and my family. This is why the church. 
And this is why after losing 50% of our people, I'm still like, I'm in. Y'all in? I'm in. Because that's worth it. And so let me pray and then we will take communion together. Father, thank you. We are grateful for who you are. And we long to see a thriving church move through the streets of West Queens, blessing people, giving family for people that don't have it, showing people that you are alive and working even when they don't feel it. We are grateful for you, Father. We long for your Holy Spirit in a way that allows us to do things that we couldn't do before you. If all we do is stuff that we can do in our strategy and strength and flesh, I don't want anything to do with it. But if you are willing to empower us and breathe on us, to not just give us hope and purpose, but to remind us that your love reaches us on its way to others in a way that transforms them, I'm all in, Father. We love you and we're grateful for you. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.